Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 58. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For episode 58, I am joined by Scott Oath. Scott is uh, a man of many talents. He is the owner of Bull Moose Patrol. He is a registered Maine guide. Um, he is a regular speaker at Canoe Copia. He runs a, is it a financial services business? Is that how you would, how would I, how would I be correct with that? Uh, yeah, that, that's it. I'm a financial advisor. A so financial a, advisor, a yep. scout leader, father to three kids. So as you can probably tell, we're lucky to have Scott joining us because he doesn't have a whole lot of free time. He's a pretty busy guy. So thanks for being on the podcast today, Scott. Hey, happy to be here. I'm, I'm hiding out in my basement, uh, escaping the chaos and enjoying the last uh, few hours of the weekend. So fun to catch up. Yeah, for sure. I'm actually hiding out in the attic. So we're, we're taking similar <laughs> uh, family men with similar approaches, I guess. Yep. yep. <laughs> got to got to take it where you can get it, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, I remember, you know, being a little kid and, you know, seeing my dad sneak away from time to time for little bits of time and wondering what he was up to. And now I know, I know, you know, a hundred percent exactly what he was up to. So yep, just exactly. trying to find claw out a little bit of quiet time in a, in a world full of chaos. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, tell me a little bit about your, uh, background helped for our listeners. Uh, you know, you're the owner of a, of a, a custom guide company. You have a full-time regular job. And I know a lot of the folks that listen to us, um, think along the same lines, right? Like they love spending time out. They would love to, to move towards making that a profession and not just a hobby. Um, and you've successfully pulled that off. So, uh, give us the, you know, the, the one minute, um, background talk. Oof. Well, one minute, that's gonna be tough. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, I grew up in an outdoorsy family. My dad loved the outdoors. Uh, my mom had grown up on a farm, so I heard a lot of stories and, you know, hung around uh, my uncles who were into hunting and trapping and things like that. And I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and the house I grew up in right out my back door was uh, railroad tracks with a large wooded corridor. And I only had to walk through those woods really right out my back door. And I could jump a fence into a 5,000 acre forest. That's the University of Wisconsin's Arboretum that was designed by a Aldo Leopold, when he was a uh, uh, professor of wildlife management and ecology there at the University of Wisconsin. So I'm sure you and probably a lot of listeners are familiar with Aldo Leopold. So that was that was my playground growing up. And he had worked to recreate the different biomes of Wisconsin in that one, one forest preserve. So we had pine forest, we had hardwood forest, there was prairie and grassland, and I could hike 10 miles out my back door even though i grew up in sort of a suburban environment uh th this was it this was my backyard and so endless time tromping around building forts and uh along the train track corridor you know hunting and and things along those lines and cross-country skiing back there and a whole lot of time but um uh got involved in scouts my dad had been an eagle scout and thought that that was a great thing for him and it ended up being a wonderful experience for me we were a uh, a really strong troop when I was involved. I had some wonderful friends. It was the early eighties. It was not the cool thing to do at all. It was nerdy 
sort of a covert thing that you did, but it was, it was wonderful. And we camped every month of the year, you know, cave camping, bike camping, whitewater rafting, canoe trips, backpacking. And, uh, as it got into the mid teens, we did every summer, a big high adventure trip. And we alternated between backpacking for a week out in the Rockies or canoe camping in the boundary waters in Quetico. So that, that was big, uh, big passion of mine. I've always loved it. I got involved in sports and that took up a lot of my time kind of in my late teens and twenties and into my thirties, still did outdoor activities. But then as I more or less beat my body up and started losing my uh, effectiveness as a volleyball player, I really dove back into the outdoors world and started doing more trips and just fueling that passion. And maybe kind of a key thing, Tim, yes, was sort of the balance between my financial advisor business, which I do love and I'm passionate and worked hard to build that is about uh, 12, 13 years ago, I left an employee role as a financial advisor and started my own practice and became self-employed and owned my own business there. And so while that had its own healthy helpings of blood, sweat, and tears, it also gave me a fair amount of flexibility schedule-wise and free time-wise. And it still does. I, I work hard at it and I, I love it, but um, I can design my schedule and have a fair amount of flexibility there to run bull moose patrol and do those trips so at this point i'm still involved in scouts i've been an adult volunteer for the last 20 years and i volunteer at the national high adventure base in the boundary waters and our local council here in minneapolis and st paul and uh, i've done a lot of things in terms of you know, fundraising and eagle scout alumni and that type of thing but my passion is still training leaders and getting them in the field for high adventure particularly canoe camping and winter camping and then Bull Moose Patrol started the business uh, a number of years ago and took uh, just a lot of things I've been doing for family, friends, scouts, and decided to make a business around it and had been doing a lot of pro-level type training, came on and did your course, Tim, and a number of other ones, and um, so run a lot of uh, weekend, long weekend trips, and then usually a few longer um, expedition type trips each year. So. Awesome. And I guess maybe we have one other thing to throw in there is we, we do try to be pretty active on the digital side and we've worked hard at the blog. I say we, my wife is involved. She's a great writer. That's, that's her trade. And so we've worked to, uh, on our blog, bullmoosepatrol.com, work to try and oh, write up a lot of the great rivers and trails and places for wilderness experience within a few hours of, of where we live here. So we've tried to be a, a digital resource for places to go and also technique wise, how to, how to do it. Nice. And you guys are, uh, I'm, I think I'm correct here, where you guys are based in, in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul? That's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. We live in a nor northern suburb, work in the Twin Cities. So it's a, you know, it's a good sized metro area, but it's just, in my mind, it's got to be one of the best um, if you're an outdoor enthusiast. I, I guess there's a lot of good ones, but I, I really enjoy it here because I can get in the car and I only have to go about an hour north, and I'm really getting into that zone where it's coniferous forest and, and getting into boreal um, forest and Canadian shield country. If I go an hour south, southeast, I'm in the hardwoods and the uh, driftless region where the glaciers never hit, huge rolling bluffs and um, different feel and look there. Or if I head out west just a little ways, I'm into grasslands in the edge of the prairie. So it's, it's a neat area where you can experience different types of environments. Yeah, you should uh, forward this to the Chamber of Commerce because they'll probably get a whole bunch of people moving in. <laughs> I, I should. Yeah. You're, you're painting a pretty good picture uh, for for. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that think that sounds super ideal. So anyway, um, so you did mention that yes, you came out and did a uh, Jack Mountain course in 2012 it was a canoeing canoe polling our riverman course and we refer to that specific week as the deluge week um so for those of you out there in podcast land that summer we were having a bit of a drought and then we had this week scheduled to do a whole bunch of canoe polling canoe paddling on all the awesome northern main rivers and we got a day i think we got a day and a half into the week and then the skies opened up and they didn't stop um so just as an example i i keep an eye on the level of the aroostook river where the field school is based and i think we were at about 200 cubic feet per second uh before 
the skies opened up and at the end of like a day and a half of rain, it blew up to like 16,000 cubic feet per second. So that's orders of magnitude larger. The, the, the long uh, version of the short story is that um, <coughs> excuse me, all the rivers flooded like crazy and it just wasn't safe for us to, uh, to head out onto the river. So we had to amuse ourselves in other ways. Um, I recall we, we did a bunch of crafting. We built some pack baskets. We went hiking in Baxter State Park. So, you know, anything I, as the, as the sort of guide and or leader, I was looking for anything to keep everybody from basically from lynching me. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you did a good job, Tim. You, you did a good job. And, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but it, it, I had I had that time slot booked. I was going to be doing a trip up in northwest Ontario, and uh, a couple of people fell apart. The trip fell apart. I was looking for something else to do. You had done a great job early on. You know, I'd been following you for a while online, your your blog and your social media post. And, and so somehow it just kind of hit that you were running this course, and I was like, Wow, I always kind of wanted to go to Maine. That sounds interesting. And I was really intrigued by the canoe polling thing. And we have a big canoe culture here in Minnesota. Um, some people would claim or argue it's the epicenter of canoeing. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it is a big culture here. But no one polls. And I knew no one who did it. They, it seemed like it was almost sort of this mythical thing. Or if anyone talked about it all, they'd say, well, you know, the rivers here are different than they are out in Maine and, and the only the rocky bottom. Anyway, we, we went up to your course and uh, yeah, we, we did get a lot of rain, but we did get that intro the first couple of days. We, we went up to Squapan Lake. You showed us the basics. We worked on you know walking back and forth. You talked a lot about technique. We had a nice paddle that day. We won the Aroostook River. That was good. And, uh, you, you know, I, I really think um, a big part of being a guide is using good decision making and good judgment. And, and, you know, it sucked, but you made the call that uh, the rivers were not safe for us to be on. And uh, you, you did do a good job at tap dancing, come up with a plan B and <laughs> make crooked knives and pack baskets and, you know, cordage from, from fibers and all manner of bushcrafty type stuff and spent some time in the shack, uh, reading your books and telling good stories. And it, I, I look back fondly at Baxter state park. We had a great day hiking in the park at the end of the week too. I remember. Yeah. And that, uh, that beautiful stream we walked up with the, I think the water temperatures maxed out at about 33 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> As I remember jumping in and being, oh my God, this is cold. And it was, you know, the, the heat of the summer. And, and it never yeah, gets mean, any warmer. It's those classic yeah, that, like, mountain that streams. That shriek you let out. I mean, that was, it was, <laughs> it was like a, a young girl who just, you know, scalded herself. It was incredible. I get that a lot. I get that a lot. I didn't know you could go that high. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the, uh, you had the good fortune to spend the week that week with another one of our alumni who's now an international celebrity as is in the persona of Sam Larson who went on to win season five of Alone and I know that you guys have kind of uh seen each other quite a bit in the last couple of years at various events and and you know I, I love to hear stories like that you know guys who met on a course or a trip and then built a friendship afterwards that's like uh you know just kind of fills you makes you feel a little warm inside gives you the warm oh yeah fuzzies. yeah it, it was cool I remember uh Sam was a nice guy when met him out there at, at your camp in Maine and we had a good time on the on the river and, and hanging out with him and eating ice cream and stuff like that and then you know ended up bumping into him years later at uh, winter camping symposium here in Minnesota and we picked right up where, where we left off and uh, I actually ended up sharing a tent this year at the symposium and and now he's uh, you know who knew the little puppy was then became this big international um, superstar, but we are talking about doing a trip together later this summer and, and yeah, it, it was a, uh, it was a great meeting. That's awesome. Yeah. That's uh that's just great. It's a great, great story. Uh, great. How you guys are building a friendship around it. Um, yeah. Nothing but nothing but great things to say about Sam. You always hear the stories about, you know, so-and-so became a big star and changed and everything. And, uh, I don't know. I've kept in pretty regular contact with him and, and it hasn't happened yet. You know, he's definitely different than the kid he was then with two kids and, you know, running around <laughs> chasing them. And I think, you know, that changes yeah. all of us when that happens. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But. You, you know, the interesting thing. So I, I don't watch a whole lot of the different reality survival shows and whatnot, but I, I watch a few. And I, when I heard Sam was on that first time, I was like, whoa, I got to see this. 
And I just thought it was interesting. You know, they're showing people being dropped off in the, the first time he did it. And some of them are freaked out about bears. And, you know, you can tell they're, you know, they're, they're really uncomfortable. And there's Sam howling back and forth with the wolves and grinning ear to ear. And you can just tell, like, he has really spent time in the woods He's comfortable with it. You know, he, I don't know how long he had you know, spent up there here uh, at Jack Mountain, but quite a while. And then even seeing the technique stuff coming through, um, you know, raised bed with the fire underneath, some of the, the Morris Kohansky type techniques that I know, you know, you've studied and I've had some time with Morris and, and he did really well. He's a really great guy. Couldn't have been more happy for him to see him winning that. Yeah. Um, and the, I don't really watch any of the, uh, we don't really have, we, we get TV through the a Roku. Basically we get like on demand TV online. Um, but I never get to use it cause my kids are always using it. But so we just don't get any of the live shows. So I never see any of them. Um, uh, but I, I was, I was expecting, you know, the fingers come out. We don't really have air quote TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite, you know, hipsters will always be sure to tell you that I don't even own a TV and they'll make sure oh, yeah. that they weave that into the, uh, weave it yep. into the discussion about every two minutes so that there's no question about who owns a TV and who doesn't. Right. Like we, we got it, Tim. We all got the virtue signal. We know you're, you're <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's funny in this day and age cause you don't need a TV, right? You can see it all on your phone or your whatever. So it doesn't, that's right. Owning a that's TV right. is so like 10 years ago or not owning a TV. It doesn't really matter, <laughs> but I guess yep. my point is I don't really follow those things, but, but, uh, I did watch the first season of alone. Um, essentially, you know, I'm usually up at the field school for six or seven months of the year. And then at the end of our season around Halloween, when I get home, uh, that year, I was happy to watch, uh, I think we binged watch the whole season of Alone and just watching Sam go through his stuff. We did it all in a day, my wife and kids and I. And, you know, it, it th- those shows are interesting to me when you know somebody on them. When you don't, it's like anything else. Like, um, you know, back 10 years ago, I knew a bunch of guys who played in the National Hockey League. And it was always fun to watch the games if you knew the guy. But, you know, right. now I don't know who any of them are. So it's not that interesting to me. So it's probably the same right. with the... Uh, right reality right. tv stuff right yeah well it was interesting seeing you uh in uh in norway in your <laughs> your uh, spot in the limelight there yeah that was super fun experience right like really nice people uh just you know well done well put together and 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 i had a good time uh doing that because it wasn't the there was none of the sort of you know fake drama of if we don't catch this squirrel we're all gonna die. They treated it like a game, and so it was fun to participate. And I had, I had a really good time doing it. Um, you know, nice guys, whatever. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, I thought it was great. I, I thought one because I know you preach. You know, if you're in a survival situation, the importance of you know uh, maintain core body temperature, stay hydrated, and then sleep. I know you're one of the few people that really emphasizes that and seeing, you know, with that continuous daylight up there being so far North, you struggling to get to sleep. And it looked like you're getting fairly, you know, just kind of groggy and disoriented by the end, probably from lack of, you know, hitting that, that, uh, that REM and just amount of sleep that you needed. Um, Yeah. To, to a certain extent. I mean, all those shows, they sort of have their story and then they will uh, edit the footage to fit the story uh, that they're trying to tell. So, um, I did sleep. I slept fine. Uh, Oh, did you? Yeah. I wasn't, I mean, I didn't get as much sleep as I wanted, but, um, you know, it Uh, wasn't exactly as portrayed by the, uh, by the story narrative being told that I see. Yep. But you know, yeah. it is what it is. If you, if you sign on the dotted line for that type of experience, you're, that's what you're in for. You right. Know, you don't get to kind of create all the storylines. There's lots of people that get paid a lot of money to do that. And you're just kind of there, you know, when I was there, <coughs> excuse me, the other guys in the show were like, Oh, we're the dancing chickens, you know, like, you know, they, they heat yeah. it up, heat up the floor and we dance around and they film it and then make the story out <laughs> whatever they want. So, so that explains your makeup and wardrobe too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it was funny. They uh, they had me do a uh, like a Facebook question and answer thing right after the show aired, and and you know you get a lot of. I mean, there were like thousands of people asking questions and stuff. I don't. I had never done anything like that, so it was very interesting to me. And I remember one guy asked me what kind of pants I had for the show, you know, and I was like, you know, I, and I remember answering honestly, like, I don't, I don't know, but they're really old. They're really dirty and I still have them. 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, but they weren't anything high speed or anything. We probably got them at the thrift store or, or whatever. So it didn't, you know, it didn't really matter. But it was interesting yeah. that those were the sorts Just, of questions. Yeah, your usual bushcraft skinny jeans, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just, you know, from the perspective of, it, you know, uh, I think we, we spend a lot of time in this day and age thinking about talking about the things that don't matter. Right. And right. then the very few things that really do matter and matter a lot kind of get glossed over and nobody cares. So in, in that situation, it, it like the pants I had on really didn't matter at all. It wasn't that cold. I mean, it was it was right around the solstice. So when we were up on the mountains, it was still, you know, cold at night. But during the day, it was 60 degrees or so, which, you know, just because as I know you do and I also do extended winter trips. So, you know, it's not really yeah. cold until it's really, you know, below zero or whatever. And then you're like, okay, right. now it's a different, it's a different experience. But if it's 50, 60 degrees during the day, you can stay dry and stuff who, it doesn't matter what you have on. And it, this always leads me to believe, um, well, the every, because, um, in new England, we've got the white mountains and the Appalachian trail and every summer there is always somebody that gets lost and then they, ultimately find their way out and then the news media interviews them and then the headline is always something to the effect of you know man or woman lost in woods survives by i don't know rolling up in piles of dirt or something like that and you're like <laughs> right. well really they they survived because it wasn't cold um and maybe they survived in spite of the stupid thing that they did that the media wants to harp on so there was one last fall i wrote a blog post about it it was some kid or guy on like a raft somewhere in Southeast Asia. And like the, I guess they go sit on these rafts and fish. And then the, you know, every week or so someone comes out and, and they switch off or something like that. I don't know exactly how it works, but anyway, the rope to the anchor broke. So this thing just went adrift for like 15 days. But I remember the headline that the media jumped on. And I think it was Newsweek magazine, but, you know, boy survives by drinking water, filtering seawater through his clothes or something. Mm. And, you know, so supposedly, mm -hmm. according to this, you know, knucklehead writer who wrote the story, that yeah. if you're lost in that sort of situation, that you can, if you suck seawater through your clothes, you're going to survive longer. So what it should have read was that this, kid survived in spite of drinking seawater through his clothing um, because as we know like seawater does not filter salt from salt water and yep. if you drink salt water you will die faster you will not last longer but because of like sort of the people who write these stories there's no uh, there's nobody like fact checking the story or the headline and the goal of the headline. I mean, it's a business. They're trying to get eyeballs on the article. I understand all that. That's not lost on me. But the downside is, I think if, you know, if I had no background in survival or bushcraft or whatever, and I read that, then all of a sudden I've created this magical belief somewhere in the recesses of my mind. So if I'm ever stuck somewhere, I think I too will survive by drinking seawater, by filtering through my clothing. And just, you know, the, the, the falsehoods and the myths are thus perpetuated. And it's yeah. annoying to me. Um, yeah. 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 It, it, you know, I think there's many areas of life uh, where you can see something that uh, worked for one person or something happened and but that doesn't mean you can extrapolate it backwards and mean that's a a good path just because in that one case it happened to work out so it's um that definitely sounds like that's one of those yeah and 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 just to bring it full circle just you know in new england every summer somebody gets lost and the if you read the articles and took them at face value they survived because they I don't know, licked do or, you know, some other thing that's really kind of dumb. Um, and the, then what we're left with people like you and I who teach other people how to survive during adverse situations in the forest is that you have to spend half the time kind of, uh, eliminating those false beliefs when you could just jump into here's what you do. You know, then you get all the questions of, well, what about, you know, on the, whatever bear grills when he drank seawater or did this or did that and you're sort of you know it's almost you're almost like a myth busting uh trying to get people to stop with the fantastic beliefs and that takes up more time than maybe the actual course content where you want to teach people what to do instead of what not to do and just a pet peeve of mine and uh i don't know why 
I don't know why I got yeah, triggered no, there. No, no, I, I think I think it's an important one. I think I think there's um, there's many areas where um, either people, you know, I see what's coming to mind, kind of related to that is people engage in some type of outdoor recreation where they've done it before. Maybe they've done it many times. You might say they're very experienced and they've done it a certain way and it's always worked out for them. But you throw one little wrench in that routine. You know, a, a sprained ankle, uh, you know, food poisoning. I was leading a canoe trip this summer and I got terrible food poisoning. I ended up crawling around my hands and knees in the middle of the night a couple times, you know, on a sandbar, just violently ill. Um, or an injury, you know, a, a gash, a twig in the eye, something like that. And how quickly someone who's maybe thinly prepared, lightly equipped, um, not experienced or skilled in doing anything other than that basic trip up and down the trail the way they've always done it before it could really get them into trouble and and um and then you know some of the ways things are taught i think get a little fantastic too especially if you get into survival and primitive skills there's a lot of i think primitive skills that are fun to learn can be very rewarding to learn they they could be very additive or helpful in a you know emergency or survival situation but the thing I always kind of think about is what really leads to, you know, if you look at search and rescue statistics, you're talking about the lost hiker. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's people that are getting lost, they get injured, they're sick, they run out of time, it gets dark. And, you know, some of these techniques require full capability. They require two hands, two eyes, maybe high energy level. And uh, that's why I'm often talking to people about Yes, let's learn these skills for fun because they are rewarding. They're a great way to have a deep outdoor experience without necessarily having to go far. But, you know, when you're really talking about actual wilderness travel or tripping, I, I believe in, hey, let's stack the deck in your favor. I'm not saying bring mountains of gear along, but let's make sure that you're properly equipped. And if something does go wrong, you've built in a you know margin of safety for yourself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and uh, I know you and I have talked in the past. And to me, you know, being out on a remote expedition for a week and a multiple, like a two-week expedition is a whole different animal than a weekend trip. Completely. But, but for me, being out a multi-week trip, and especially in the winter, that's where all the kind of fake stuff, all the things that don't really work, it all falls away there. And that's the one of the beauties of being out and doing those long longer term arduous trips is that, you know, when someone has had that experience, a lot of the sort of things that pass as survival skills or whatever, say on YouTube or, you know, in a, in a short one day workshop, um, a lot of the kind of the BS that, that is perpetuated there just falls away. So the, the good test for a lot of the sort of things that pass for survival skills is, will they cut the mustard on, for example, a two week cold weather trip? And if they, you know, if they'll work there, they'll work anywhere. But like you say, if you and I are out and we have a group of people and somebody busts through the ice, we're out on a frozen lake, they get soaked up to their neck, it's 20 below and the wind's blowing real good, that is not the time for you, me, or anybody else to prance through the forest looking for good friction firewood, right? (laughs) If you have it, that's the time to flip over a 55-gallon drum of diesel fuel and light it on fire and yeah. to stop that person from dying. And I think that the... Yeah, yeah. to get know, the, the road flare sort of, out of your bag and, yep. Exactly, like the, <laughs> the purest of the, the primitive skill stuff. And, and, you know, I'm a long-time, lifelong practitioner and proponent of those techniques, and I think they're awesome and they add a lot to the experience. But, you know, there's certain things that are appropriate um, for survival and then certain things that maybe are more of a primitive living. And I think that that line is often pretty blurry, to a lot of people. And I think that when you experience, you know, a, a long, hard expedition, that line is no longer blurry. You know, you then you'll take exactly what you need and maybe nothing you don't. I, I, I think that's I think that's dead on. I, I think that's uh, so accurate. And that's always been one of the things I've liked about what you're doing. Part of the reason I went out and took a course with you and I like following what you're up to with Jack Mountain is you're teaching the skills, you're teaching the great traditional skills you've you know you've got the style points there but also just what's really worked and is effective and it's a wonderful way to travel but then you you know you take people on 
trips on expeditions. And that absolutely is where the rubber meets the road. You know, anyone can bumble by on a weekend or in the woods, whatever, out behind their house or something like that, you know, a mile from the car. But when you're having to travel and cover ground on a time schedule, it's uh, it's a completely different deal. And, and a lot of it is done before you even leave, you know, the, the planning and preparation of the food, the thinking about the timing of the travel, the decision making, you know, how you manage the pace of the group. Uh, maybe you have someone that's not quite up, you know, in, in terms of being able to push as hard as other folks and and uh, and, and, you know, managing that expedition behavior and, and the nerves and uh that's part of it too you know or being a good group leader and a lot of those things are very different than um just endlessly practicing primitive skills um out back so i love that stuff i i'm trying i'm always trying to get better at it i find it very rewarding and fun but i always come from you know i guess i got my start as a wilderness tripper backpacking, canoe camping, um, those types of things. So that's the paradigm I'm always seeing it through. And I, I see some folks doing things. I just think just right away it jumps out at me. Well, that's not going to work on a long trip. Um, you know, like here in Minnesota, there's a lot of, uh, not, not a lot, not a lot at all, but there's a small hardcore group of people that have done Arctic canoe trips for the last 30, 40 years. And some of those guys are my mentors and the people I really try and study and learn from. And you, you know what, you know what you never hear them talking about, what knife they carry, you know, <laughs> that doesn't even come up. They talk about things like, you know, what rain gear they have, uh, what, what food, you know, yeah. navigation, what maps they use, how they get information about rivers and water levels. You know, those are the things that they talk about obsessively. No one's talking about what full tang knife or what the steel is in their knife or what grind they have on the knife. It's almost irrelevant, you know, and these are guys that are doing, month long, three month long trips, you know, above the Arctic circle, you know, paddling through herds of caribou and muskox. So it, it is, uh, it, it is interesting. I think that the kind of filter of what really works on an expedition or a long trip. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I am in wholehearted agreement. And the, I think the lesson, if you're out there listening in podcast land is that no one cares about your knife. <laughs> no one cares, right? It just, and it's funny. Uh, I think can, it was. Can I, share a secret, can I share a secret, Tim? Just between you and I. Yeah, yeah. Now that I've said that, I, I really like knives, but <laughs> I, I try not to. I try and quash that lust <laughs> down and keep it simple. So. I, I, I like them as well, uh, you know. But I just think the point is that their utility is maybe, you know, if that's your only tool, great. But we have. Uh, couple of super experienced guys that that i know you know uh, i don't need to name them but at the end of a, a two-week snowshoe trip we were talking about you know the uh, during a debrief we sort of like okay so what was the tool you used the most and you know winter tripping uh, hot tent camping you're using an axe and a saw a lot and you could just get by with just a saw you know but yeah. we're, we usually fell with an axe and then we'll section everything with a saw so we yeah. were talking about oh i use this tool every day blah 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 and then we talked about knives at the end of it and you know, people come to the realization that I used a knife to like spread peanut butter or to, you know, cut bread or cut some food or something. And, but you know, the, the sort of, we're not trying to be John Rambo out in the woods. Like you're not tying your knife to a stick and killing wild pigs and like, you know, wrestling <laughs> dragons and zo killing zombies with it. And so, yeah. it was, you know, that those sorts of things are, are a great, uh, a great offshoot of spending a lot of time out on a trip is just, you know, you, cause then you don't have to say some guy loves his knife and say he bought a $600 custom knife or, you know, spent five years learning the art of, of forging blades and made one. And then you don't want to be like, Hey, that's cool, but it doesn't really matter. But it's awesome as a guide or as an instructor, when you sort of set up a situation where they can arrive at that, uh, mm -hmm. destination on their own where you don't have to say anything. And I think then the lessons are learned. But if, you know, if somebody's in love with their knife and you're like, oh, that's cool, but you're not going to use it much. It's kind of a dead weight. Then, then they're going to be angry with you and you're the bad guy for, for this or that. But when they can arrive at those, uh, aha moments on their own, it's, it's a, it's a much better learning outcome, I think for the person. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, Hey, there's a lot of things folks like to collect, or they're just fun to have. And if you can afford it, I, I just, I, I completely agree with that. I think don't let that lack of some high end custom knife or whatever object it is, hold you back from feeling like 
uh, you know, the experience is, is out there and it's, you know, it's absolutely skills above gear. And I try to think about as I work on controlling, you know, little, uh, desires that come up in terms of gear, you know, I'd rather try to own or acquire a skill or a bit of knowledge. And sometimes I try and trick myself or I talk to people about thinking about that, you know, understanding some other plant or tree and knowing more about that its uses and how that could come into play or going from the J stroke to Canadian or Northwood stroke, you know, think of the endless, the lifetime of pleasure that can come from owning and acquiring that skill as opposed to, you know, the constant obsession of the next piece of gear. Yeah. And I think we're, you know, we live in a, in a, in a, uh, capitalistic society and there's always going to be new pieces of gear but it's always good to remember that for 99 percent of human history they didn't have metal knives you know they didn't have anything like that so, right right so for right. us to uh to think that we need it in order to be out on the land is, is is a bit of a stretch maybe promulgated by modern marketers or something um, yeah uh, so but yeah i think it's awesome that that we're of the same of the same idea there. And I think like you say, when you talk to people who have spent a lot of time on the trail, they often have very similar kind of approaches to that idea of skill versus gear, just because, um, I think, it, I don't know if you're eventually will result at that viewpoint as a result of experience. Cause I'm sure we could find people that disagreed. Um, but mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of people, and I don't want to say most, but a lot of people come to that kind of mindset after a lot of time out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, which yep. is good. Yep. Yeah. So just want to switch gears a little bit here. I know that you are a, um, among your many talents, you are a registered Maine guide living in Minnesota, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and <laughs> one of the things that you do as a Maine guide is that you speak at Canoe Copia every year. Um, right. So tell me a little bit about that. I spoke there, just a little bit of background. I spoke there two years, I think 2004, 2005, had a great time. Um, but tell me a little bit about the event or at least, uh, tell our, the folks out there in podcast land a little bit about the event and, 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 you know, kind of the topics that you talk on there. Yeah. So there's a, uh, a company called Rutabaga out of Madison, Wisconsin, and they run canoe copia and it's an event that's been going on for a long time. I started going when I was a little kid. My dad and I have a birthday a day apart in the middle of March and it was always over our birthday weekend. And we went back when it was a smaller show, but it's, uh, it, they, they put it on, there's a lot of manufacturers there. There's tons of gear for sale. There's, there's great, uh, deals to be had, you know, if you're looking for new canoes or paddles or camping gear, that's part of it. But the big deal in my mind is the, the knowledge sharing they've got. Oh, I don't even know dozens, maybe a hundred plus speakers. It's probably on the website giving talks. So from Friday night through Sunday afternoon, every hour, you've got your choice of multiple different presentations going on. A lot of trip reports, a lot of people talking about paddling and a, a wide range of stuff, you know, from canoe tripping in the North and the Arctic to Ozarks, to Florida, to, you know, sea kayaking. There's a lot of stand-up paddle boarding. So there's a lot of that, but w whatever you're looking for in terms of the wilderness or paddling world, you, you'll, uh, you know, you'll probably be happy that you went. And so I went when I was a kid and that really helped fuel my interest and, and desire in a lot of this and got me dreaming of, of the North and, you know, paddling in piney lands and seeing moose and catching huge fish and seeing the Northern lights and all that. And so it was a lot of fun to me, a lot of fun for me for uh, a couple of years ago to come back as a speaker. And since I have done a lot of trips in Maine and that's, you know, your area out there, even though I view Maine as really a sister state to Minnesota, there's so much similar, but enough different that I really think it makes the trip either way worthwhile. But uh, not a lot of people in this area are familiar with Maine, but I think Minnesota, I'll just state my my biases here, uh, probably better lake country paddling, you know, the, the boundary waters in Quetico, but in Maine, the nice thing, why I think it makes a great next step for that boundary waters paddler is the long rivers that you have, you know, you have fewer people. I think we have a population of about four and a half million. You're a little over a million. You've got more elevation. You've got Mount Katahdin running down to sea level, very wet environment with the Maritimes. And you got some 
some long rivers, rivers that don't require a lot of portages. You've got some nice white water. So the, the rivers in Maine, to be able to go and do a, a long, a week-long or a five-day-long trip is just fantastic. you got a lot of moose. You know, Unfortunately, our moose herd in northern Minnesota's suffered and uh it was a lot fewer but we did the allagash a year ago we saw eight moose in the fall and that was that's fantastic i'm sure you've done trips you've seen a lot more so anyway yeah canoe copia i'll be talking about paddling maine's wild rivers which is one of the presentations i've done a couple times and i'm talking about canoe polling it's kind of one of my little personal missions through bull moose patrol and is to uh work on reintroducing canoe polling to the upper midwest it it was here there was a group out of missouri where it was really big in the late 70s that seems to have died out and you know if you look at our logging history it's the same as northern maine in fact a lot of lumberjacks moved from maine to new york to michigan to wisconsin to minnesota yeah they just kept moving west they just they just kept history they just kept moving west and they say i think i mentioned earlier you know when i was interested in polling this story i kind of hear as well you know our rivers are a little different well guess what if I look at old photos of lumberjacks on the Flambeau or Chippewa River in northern Wisconsin, they're standing on logs with pike poles. And then I see, oh, here's photos of them in canoes, you know, with fishermen, you know, holding them in an eddy while they're trying to catch that big muskie. <laughs> and same yep, thing in yep. Minnesota. So I've found there's some fantastic rivers in our driftless country down in the uh, southeast part of the state. You have a rocky bottom, bluff country rivers that are just awesome for poling. And some really great ones, um, Northwest Wisconsin, Minnesota as well. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about polling. And uh, I, there's a, another great outdoor show similar here in the Twin Cities, uh, outdoor shop called Midwest Mountaineering runs an outdoor expo every spring and fall. It's a little bit more broad based. It covers a lot of different outdoor recreation. And I'm the one guy that's uh, out of all all the dozens of speakers has a fairly strong traditionalist bent. So you got people talking cool stuff like fat biking and stand up paddle boarding. And then I'm doing a demo on axe saw on knife use and stuff like that and wilderness survival. But same thing talking about canoe polling and uh, I talk a lot about winter camping and wilderness survival and things like that at, at those talks. That's um, at awesome. those events. Yeah. I always enjoy Especially when most of the crowd is is more modern and mountaineering based, they always look at me like I have three heads. If you mention an axe or a saw or a traditional tool, and um, so yeah, it's it's. I, good. I think there's a lot of them that that they're you know they're curious though is what I found, and um, we have, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's some people will write off the bat think you're a horrible person if you even mention an axe, but then there's a lot of others who will listen and. Um, I view it, I think where I could see the discussion going is, you know, you look at something like hunting and fishing, it's a consumptive activity, but we've decided most states have, uh, sort of a protocol, there's rules and regulations around how we can do this and not damage the population. In fact, it can be beneficial. I don't know if we need to get into a lot of rules and regulations or something like an ax, but, uh, I think that same mindset that, this is actually in many ways, in many environments. I mean, where you are cutting down some dead wood and having your fire to cook over is, it has to be better ecologically than burning through a bunch of camp stove gas, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, a previous podcast and definitely blog post that we've had in the past, we try to make the difference between, uh, 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 what am I looking for? Minimum impact versus displaced impact. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, right. you know, minimum impact being uh, having less of a footprint on the planet uh, versus displaced impact. And I, I would say that camp stoves are usually displaced impact, that there's a big impact, but it's not felt where the people are doing the recreating. Yep. Um, but, yep. you know, there's I think there's appropriate s- skills and techniques for each biome. And where we're at in northern Maine, there's just about unlimited dead standing timber to make small cooking fires and stuff. So it's appropriate there. Places don't see a lot of people. They don't see a lot of use. But, for example, in like a high alpine with, uh, you know, short, really old trees, that's not an appropriate place to cook over a fire. So, you know, I think that uh, using your head and making sure that what you're doing is appropriate to where you're recreating is important. I was just going to make the point where you said that, you know, people would judge you and think you were a bad person right when you started talking about an axe that I don't have that problem because people 
um, will believe that I'm a, a bad person before I say anything at all. And they're, <laughs> they're usually right. Um, only, you know, 99% of the time or so. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny stuff. So, uh, cool. Yeah. So if you, I'll put in a plug that I thoroughly enjoyed Canucopia when I was there. So if you're within, I don't know, 15 hours or so of Madison, Wisconsin. It's in early or mid, early to mid March. You can look them up on the website and we'll put it in the show notes, a link to it. But you should definitely attend if you've never been. You know, like Scott says, any imaginable piece of gear you can see and pick up and hold in your hand and talk to the manufacturers as well as get great deals, as well as be able to take in an absolute wealth of knowledge on a variety of topics, um, you know, uh, starting with Scott um, regarding canoeing, camping, and adventure travel. So put it on your list if you've never been. It's it's worth the trip. It's a good time. Um, So a couple of last quick questions. Your favorite winter trip. So upper Midwest, where should people consider going if they're doing a, like a hot tent snowshoe toboggan trip? Well, I, you know, I think the easy answer, the, the, uh, sort of the pinnacle experience in this area has to be the boundary waters, canoe area wilderness, just because of the size of it. And, you know, even the difference of going from Minneapolis up to Ely or Grand Marais where you enter the boundary waters, it's, uh, it's significantly cold significantly further north and you get really into the canadian shield country so like i said it's kind of the the easy answer but it's a huge area and the experience there in the winter is uh is phenomenal i mean first of all it's usually serious cold i've led trips through the cold weather leader school for the boy scouts for the last several you know januaries and 30 below is not uncommon so you definitely it's not a place for beginners unless you are going with a guide or someone who really knows what they're doing but you know the opportunity for uh, northern lights to hear the ice booming under your head or the trees popping with the cold um, to just see the, the incredible frozen beauty of the boundary waters you know we have quite a few healthy wolf population here tim which i don't believe you have in maine but nope. chance here officially call- we don't have any south of the st lawrence but all the biologists are claiming now that there's a new it's like a new subspecies of a hybrid wolf coyote and dog the, and that's the what we koi, have, koi so. wolf yeah yeah well i mean it, when you hear them howling across a frozen lake you know and it's 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 a really neat experience so yeah many entry points um in the winter, I usually go in Ely and off and off of uh, Moose Lake, which is a little east of uh, east of Ely. But there's a, a lot of great entry points, so that's that's probably my favorite for winter camping. Okay, uh, so related question: Upper Midwest, and I'm guessing the answer might be the same. But where would you advise <laughs> people to go canoeing? Well, of course, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness there, again, is great. But what I've been doing a lot with our trips is we have fantastic rivers that, I mean, honestly, just almost no one's on because it's folks are so hardwired if they're doing any paddling. First of all, maybe it's just kind of an afternoon of paddling around you know, at their cabin while they're at the lake, which is wonderful. Or you have people where it's just the tradition. They go to the Boundary Waters. They've been doing that with their parents or their uncle or their scout group or whatever for years and years. And it's wonderful. I could happily spend the rest of my life paddling around the boundary waters in the Quetico. But we've got great rivers in Minnesota, you know, in the Northeast, we've got uh, some some wonderful, uh, you know, coniferous forest type rivers, a lot like you have in Maine. In the Southeast, we've got the Driftless region. And so those two different areas have a very different feel. And they're, they're, they're great. And then, you know, there's this thing, this state line, we have this sort of this friendly animosity. But since I grew up in Wisconsin, I live in Minnesota now, it doesn't really apply to me. I can go across the state line. It doesn't bother me. But there's there's some great long rivers all through northern Wisconsin, too. The Flambeau River is one of my favorite. Not many people on it, but you can do a 100-mile trip. It goes through a monstrous reservoir area with hundreds of islands that you can camp on. feels a lot like the Boundary Waters. And then there's sets of, you know, rapids throughout. Great history on that river. Same thing with the Chippewa, with the, the Namakagan and St. Croix, which are uh, actually a national wild and scenic riverway. So those are my favorites for longer trips. I guess I'm cheating here. I'm just throwing out a whole bunch of stuff. 
But uh, for a day trip, for people in the Twin Cities or a weekend, man, the, the Bluff Country Rivers are just awesome. They're a lot of fun for a weekend. The Cannon River, the Root, the uh, the Black River in Wisconsin. You've got high, towering limes, limestone and sandstone bluffs, bald eagles swirling around, fast, rocky little rivers, and they're just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, you're making me want to travel west. As a, a, a native New Englander, you know, we're not that well-versed on geography. So I know there's like, there's Maine and then New Hampshire and Vermont. <laughs> and then I think there's uh, New York is next. And then I yep. think there's uh, there's a couple of states in between. And then we end up in California. So <laughs> you guys are one of those in-between states um, that I want to get out and see more of. <laughs> yeah, well, come on out anytime. We'd love to have you. Right on. Anything else? Uh, anything else you want to share with our listeners? And again, we'll link in um, Bull Moose Patrol. We'll link in Canoe Copia, the Midwest Mountaineering Adventure Expo. Um, uh, but any any other kind of points that you would like to make sure that people know? Well, uh, no. This has been great talking with you. I mean, there's a lot to share. I guess what I'd say is, in terms of um, like a presence, where to find out about what we're doing with Bull Moose Patrol. Facebook is really our most active channel. You know, I'm usually posting and sharing stuff on there. And um, But we do have the website, bullmoosepatrol.com. I'd love to have people sign up as a email subscriber. And maybe the one thing I'll say is, and this may change going forward, but in, until this point, most of the trips that we've run have been sort of invite only. I have a pretty large pool of people I've done trips with in the past, people that I know. We've kept it. A somewhat tight group and that's kept me about as busy as uh, I want to be with this you know I post here's the trip schedule for this year and things fill up we're looking at getting to more of a hey post things on the site and people sign up and have standing courses on wilderness survival winter camping school canoe tripping school and uh, but if you're interested in any of this and you live anywhere in the midwest I'd say you know pop us an email at uh, bullmoosepatrol at gmail.com and express your interest and love to Love to talk it over and see if we can get hooked up for a trip or class. That's awesome. And I will, uh, you can get, can you get to your Facebook and everything from your website? Yes. Okay. Yep, you can. If, if you go to bullmoosepatrol.com, there's the links there for Facebook, which is just bullmoosepatrol and emails there. So Perfect. So I'll link that up in the show notes. Well, Scott, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today and We'll both have to leave our respective uh, man cave zones here and and <laughs> go back and interact with family members in a minute. But I just wanted to say thanks again uh, for taking the time um, and wish you much success in 2019. Yeah, this was great, Tim. I really enjoyed catching up and appreciate the opportunity. And same to you. I'm looking forward to uh, following along from afar at uh, the wonderful trips and photos and info that you're always sharing. And hope we can catch up in person before too long. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right. Well, thank you uh, for those of you out there in podcast land. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this show and think it's uh, valuable, please share it with somebody. Um, leave us a review. Leave us a star rating. You kind of know the drill at this point. We ask for it every time. Um, but thanks for spending your thanks for spending the hour with us, and we'll hit you back later. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.